The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. We're taking a break from our series in the Gospel of John. So open your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 16. And the reason we're taking a break also has to do with this structure that's behind me here. We are celebrating this weekend the final fall feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And my text is Deuteronomy chapter 16. And with that, Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into the word this evening. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to now sit at your feet, to hear your voice, to be taught by your word, Lord, that we might go out into this world as lights and as vessels, Lord to bring the kingdom down from heaven, Lord. So even as we make our prayer, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're living out the fulfillment of that prayer as we seek to bring down the tenets of the kingdom, the values of the kingdom, the king that rules in that kingdom. And as he rules in our lives, we are bringing the kingdom down with us into this sphere, into this realm. And Lord, we pray for your church that we would come alive and that the gates of hell would shudder in fear as we storm them to rescue and liberate the captives who are held in bondage so that they may become sons and daughters of the light. And we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Y'all better watch out. I'm fired up and I just started with prayer. So who knows where we're going from here? The title of my message for you this evening is Living with Longing in Our Hearts. And you'll, you'll see how it beautifully dovetails with what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. But I want to talk to you this evening about the Feast of Tabernacles, which, as you know, we're a church that dives into and digs into all of the seven feasts. We, we see Jesus in each of the feasts. We see prophetic prophecy unfolding in each of the feasts, and they speak to us about God's eternal plan as it's unfolding here on earth. And if you want to know what God's doing and when he's doing it, just look at the feasts of Israel. So we're talking about tonight the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the word tabernacle speaks of a temporary dwelling or abode. Today, a modern synonym would be a tent. And that's why we have this tabernacle or Sukkot built up on the stage for you so you can take it in. This is what we're talking about when we talk about a tabernacle. And as we're going to see, camping plays a key role in the celebration of this feast. But the main point of the feast, through the eyes of the Israelis who celebrated it, was the final ingathering of the fall harvest. 
So it was a time of great rejoicing. There's all the people gathered together in Jerusalem. This is one of three mandatory pilgrimage feasts along with uh, Passover and Pentecost where every able-bodied Jew was demanded to be in Jerusalem and they would celebrate this feast and they would gather to celebrate how God had lavishly provided for them during the previous year. That's why this feast was also known as the season of our joy. Okay, and with that as a backdrop, let's go ahead and read what God in his word says about this feast. And I'm reading out of Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 15. Celebrate, he says, the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival. You your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. And I've underlined a handful of words and phrases in these verses to highlight for us just the central dominant theme of joy, that this is a time of rejoicing as it celebrates the final harvest. The other thing we learn here in our text is that this feast was to last for seven days. Now, we're not, I'm not going to have you turn there, but over in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, we're given a few additional details about this particular feast and some of the daily sacrifices that went along with it and how you were to use palm branches and different fruits as a, a symbol of your rejoicing. And there we're also told that all the people during this week-long feast were to move out of their homes with their families, and they were to erect or set up these temporary dwellings. And by the way, if you were to be in Israel right now, you would go around and you would see all of these little shacks set up at everybody's homes. Uh, and, and it's part of this celebration. And so the whole family would camp for the entire week. And you say, well, why would they do that? Well, the answer is, primarily, it was for the kids. Kids love to camp, right? And, um, and maybe you love to camp, too. I love to camp. I'm actually going camping later this week. But in camping, it provided the parents a unique opportunity to rehearse the history of God's people as he led them for 40 years through the wilderness, having passed through the Red Sea as they made their way to the Promised Land, they lived in temporary dwellings or shelters. And so as they slept out under the stars, they could rehearse the promises and they could tell the stories of how God miraculously provided for their ancestors by giving them water from a rock and how he was a pillar of fire to them during the night and he was a covering of a cloud by day and how every morning he would rain down manna from heaven and it gave them a really cool way to reenact that whole story. And so we think about camping and, and here's what I know about camping. I have limited camping experience because my dad was not a camper. He thought, why on earth would I go sleep on the dirt when there's a very nice, comfortable bed right over here in my home. Maybe you can relate. Um, but camping's great, and it's fun for about a couple of days. Amen? Can I hear an amen? 
And then after a couple of days, you know, you start to feel every rock. And I don't care how cushy your setup is. I don't, I know we're talking about glamping now. I don't care how cozy your setup is. After more than a couple of days, man, your neck starts to feel a kink in it. And you start to feel every rock and you wake up sore and you just want to be in your home. Well, for the Israelites, their week-long camping trip, i.e. that 40-year period, it created within them a yearning and a longing to find their home, the promised land that God had promised to give them. And God had faithfully led them to it. Well, you know what? God's doing the same thing with us. In a way, this life is kind of like a camping trip. In fact, when you look at the New Testament, one of the metaphors that God uses to describe our physical bodies is he likens them to a tabernacle or a tent. Let's look at this verse together. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. It says, for we know that, are you with me? Read it with me. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Interesting. So here, Paul's talking about our earthly house of this tabernacle. And he's contrasting it with our eternal home, which is in heaven. He's talking here about our bodies. And he says, you know, our bodies, they're like tents. In other words, they're not permanent, but rather they're temporary dwellings that are used to house our spirit. You are primarily a spirit. You possess a soul, and those things live in your body. So you're kind of like a mini a trinity in that sense, that you have a body, a soul, and a spirit. You're three parts all wrapped in this one package. And, and so your body is the physical expression that, that plays out whatever your spirit and your soul want it to do. But that being the case, as with any tent over the years, the tents, they take on a little wear and tear. Does anybody resonate with that statement? Somebody say amen. Here are just a few of the signs that your tent is starting to wear thin, i.e. you're getting older. You start losing the hair on the top of your head, and it starts sprouting and growing in all kinds of places. You have no desire for it to grow. Another sign that you're getting older, whenever you fall, people panic, and they run for help. Another sign or indication that you're getting older is that you start to use the word thingy all the time because you can no longer remember what anything is called. And then the last sign that you're getting older is your teeth and you no longer sleep in the same bed at night. <laughs> ah, well, I've kind of crossed that threshold. I'm in my 40s now, and for some of you, that's like, oh. Just wait, you're young. And for others of you, you're like, wow, that's ancient. So I'm somewhere in the middle, but I'm at least old enough to know that this body is a tent. I'm, I'm approaching my 43rd birthday, and I just, I wake up, and sometimes it's like, how, where did I, how did I hurt myself? And I realize that I hurt myself sleeping, you know. <laughs> and so our tents are wearing down. 
But notice how Paul talks about how we groan and we yearn to be housed in our eternal dwelling. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples there? On the night before his crucifixion, he was gathered with them there in the upper room. John 14 tells us about this. And he starts to talk to them about his soon departure. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says this, in my father's house are many mansions. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Now I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you so that where I am there, you might be also. And the way I'm going, you know, and, and so on and so forth. But he talks about building these mansions. And we've typically, throughout the years, associated that with, hey, when I get to heaven, there's the streets of gold, and I'm going to have like this killer crib with a pool and a slide, or I don't know, all these rooms, and so on and so forth. But is it possible, and I think probable, that the mansions Jesus was talking about there weren't physical dwellings, but rather they were our spiritual, eternal bodies, our glorified bodies, our heavenly abode, which just gives us another reason to long for heaven. And by the way, since I quote C.S. Lewis just about every single week lately, now should be a good time for me to quote him again. In the final chapter of his book, The Problem of Pain, he wrote these words, and I love this quote. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. Let me just suggest to you, that every earthly pleasure, every joy this side of heaven is like a faint echo, or it's rather like a shadow of the eternal reality that your soul was designed to experience, and that fulfillment will only be realized when you, like the heroes of Hebrews 11, recognize that you're a pilgrim and a stranger on this earth, and you long for a better country, a heavenly one, because you know that God has prepared a city for you just like he has them. That's where we're going. That's what this feast is talking about. It's talking about how we're passing through this world is not my home, and so I have the Spirit of God, and it lives within this temporary dwelling, this tabernacle, if you will. And so I want to dig into that a little bit more, and I want to see Jesus in the tabernacle, and I want to explore that. So let's talk about the tabernacle and Jesus. From the very beginning of time, God's desire has been to dwell with or tabernacle among humanity. And we see this expressed in the opening pages of our Bibles. When you read about Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, what a beautiful picture that is. This is God's heart. This is God's plan for humanity, that we would live in this paradise, and that every evening we would have a standing date with God. There's no agenda. There's no list of things that he needs to talk about. It's just, how is your day? Did you enjoy my creation? And they just shoot the breeze with God in the cool of the day. What a beautiful 
part of the human story that is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But of course, we know the story doesn't live that long in that state, because by the third page of our Bibles, the serpent makes its entrance. He tempts Adam and Eve with the forbidden fruit. They partake of it, and that sends all of humanity into this tailspin where now we see all of the fallout and all of the collateral damage from that one decision to live in rebellion against God and to say, I know better. And part of that curse was that there was a a breaking or a severing of the relationship between God and man. And ever since that time, God has been looking for a way to to cover the breach, to to close the gap, to get back to Eden, where he dwells with us. And so you have the whole story of the Israelites and God choosing a man named Abraham, and then his descendant Joseph gets carried away, and he gets raised up there in Egypt, and then a, a pharaoh arises who doesn't remember Joseph, and he oppresses the Jewish people, and then God sends a deliverer named Moses, and he leads them through the Red Sea, and, and then he brings them into the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and God says, okay, now Moses, I want you to set up a tabernacle so that I can meet with my people yet again. And it was one of the first things that God asked of Moses, I need you to set up and establish a tabernacle. And from an aerial view, as you see how God ordained and orchestrated for the tribes to be set up around the tabernacle, because every tribe was stationed around the tabernacle, it was in the heart of the camp, which is just a cool picture. And there were three tribes to the north and three tribes on to the east and to the west and, and to the south. And, and as you look at the way it was structured scripturally, really what you get from an aerial perspective is a picture of a cross. And at the heart of it is the tabernacle. And all the people were to face the, the entrance to their tents towards the tabernacle. Why? Because you never turn your back on God. And so it was the heart of Jewish culture and, and that's not where the symbolism ends. Everything about this tabernacle was a picture. It was a way for God to portray the way that he was ultimately going to open the access into heaven, and it pictures Jesus. For instance, I'll just outline a few things for you because I think this stuff is cool. There was only one entrance to the tabernacle. You couldn't just come any way that you wanted, the back, the east, the west. No, no, there was only one entrance And just as there's only one entrance into heaven, Jesus said, I am the way, not one of many. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Outside, just outside of the tabernacle, there was an altar where the sacrifices were made. This altar would have been made of acacia wood. And before you could enter the tabernacle to meet with God, You had to bring a sacrifice, and blood had to be spilled. Of course, the picture is obvious. This speaks to us of Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the camp, outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Next to the altar of sacrifice was the brazen altar where you would wash and where the priests would continually cleanse themselves daily. So what does this speak of? 
Well, even as there's only one sacrifice that needs to be made to atone for the sins of humanity, there is a daily washing and cleansing and there's daily forgiveness that's needed in our lives because, hey, we still sin and yet we have an advocate with the Father and if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and so we daily cleanse ourselves with the water of God's word and it washes us and it cleans us. It too speaks of Jesus. And then inside the tabernacle, now we've moved beyond the entrance and we're inside. There were three additional items inside the tabernacle. And again, these just all speak to us powerfully of Jesus. Here's what they were. Number one, there was a golden menorah. It was six feet tall, the seven-branched candlestick. The middle branch, the eighth branch, was called the servant, and it was used to light all the others. Jesus, the servant of the world, declared, as we just looked at a couple of weeks ago, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the lampstand. Next to that was the table of showbread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And then the third thing in that room was the altar of incense. And just as that incense would go up and it would fill the room with smoke and the beautiful fragrance of these burning oils, it pictures the high priestly work of Jesus, who is our advocate. He is our high priest, and he lives to make intercession for us. Now, beyond that room, there was another room. But it was separated. There was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. The holy of holies is where God's presence dwelt. And there was only one thing in there. It was the Ark of the Covenant. It too speaks of Jesus in a a multitude of ways. But between those two things was a thick curtain, a veil. And that veil communicated that even with the tabernacle, and even with the priests, and even with the sacrifices, and even with all of the ceremonial washings, Mankind could still only get so close. And only the high priest could go into that room. And even he could only go once a year and only for a few moments. And if he had done everything right, God would let him live. But God wanted so much more, which is why he sent Jesus. You see, in the person of Jesus, the infinite God came down and he put on flesh and bones. In Jesus, the love of Almighty God beat in a human heart. The wisdom of God spoke through human lips, and the mercy of God reached out and touched the world through human hands. Jesus was God wrapped in human flesh. In fact, remember that occasion where Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders, and he said to them, and I quote, this is John 2, 19 through 21. In fact, I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. He said this, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So we start with Adam and Eve, God dwelling with them. Sin separates God from man. God erects the tabernacle and later on the temple as a place where man and God can meet together because of the shed blood of a sacrificial animal. And now Jesus becomes the very temple of God. Let's remember that by the time Jesus came, the temple itself was just an empty shell. 
God's presence no longer resided there. They had rebelled against him, and it had become Ichabod, a place where the glory had departed. But not even that was close enough. And so God sends his son Jesus, and that's why he goes to the cross, so that he himself could become the very sacrifice that rips the veil in two, that opens the way into the presence of the Father once again. And so we see the whole narrative, the arc of the story of the Bible from beginning to end, from from Genesis all the way to the New New Testament, from the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle to the temple to Jesus. It's always been about God's desire to draw near and to come close. But the story doesn't end there because, you see, once Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, it opened the, the door for us to enter in, and now we are the tabernacle. We are like little temples. We don't have to go to a place. I'm thankful that you're here in church tonight, but let's be clear. God doesn't live at church. He goes with you wherever you go. You take him with you. Your heart now is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this clearly in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, where he says, know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God is at home in our hearts, and yet we're not at home in this world. Does that make sense? God has found a home in our hearts, but we're not at home in this world. There's still a longing inside the heart of every Christian that yearns and longs to be fulfilled. It's a longing for the Lord to come back, for the Lord to right every wrong and fix every broken thing in this backwards, broken, wicked world. And let me just tell you, that day is coming. And it's coming soon. And Jesus is going to come back. Let's not confuse this event, the second coming, with the rapture of the church, which we said and looked at in our Feast of Trumpets. Trumpets is a picture of the rapture of the church. Tabernacles is a picture of the second coming. How are those two things different? In trumpets, the church is caught up into the air. In tabernacles, the church is with the Lord coming back to the earth where he will rule and he will reign for a thousand years. So trumpets is about the church being caught up into the air. Tabernacles is about Jesus coming to the earth. And so as we close this evening, I just want to talk for a a few minutes about what it looks like to live with that longing in your heart. Since the Feast of Tabernacles foreshadows God's ultimate plan of restoration. And by the way, you need to know that that's God's plan for this world. We don't believe in the end of all things. And our message is not the end is coming. No, no, no. The end is really a new beginning. For when Jesus comes back, he's going to restore the earth to an Eden-like state. And he's going to show us what his original design and plan and intentions were all along. And the Bible describes this thousand-year period after Jesus comes back with his church in which he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And as his foot touches the Mount of Olives, 
The Bible tells us that it's going to cleave in two, and it's going to bow as if to honor and humble itself to the touch of its divine creator. At that same moment, valleys are going to rise up to honor their king, Jesus. It's a cataclysmic, world-shaping event. And he, he establishes his throne from the temple there in Jerusalem. And this is not a fairy tale. It's in the word. This is future. This is going to happen. And the Bible talks about how there will be a river that issues forth from his throne, and it goes all the way down to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is going to come to life. And it talks about this season where the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. Every lion will become a veg, no longer a carnivore. And it's going to be this incredible season where the armies of this world will take their Spears, and they will reform them and rebend them and refashion them into pruning hooks and fishing lures. And there will be world peace. And again, as I mentioned, this world will look like the Garden of Eden. The deserts will bloom and blossom like the Rose of Sharon. And, and I, I think about that because I don't know about you. I mean, I've been to some beautiful places, but shoot, it's tough to top San Diego. And... <laughs> And I spend as much time as I can down at the coast, and we're blessed because we just have the Pacific Ocean in our backyard. And I look at the sunset, and I think, wow, this is a cursed reality. Like, this is what the world looks like through the brokenness and fallenness of sin. Because there's a curse that is placed on this earth. And yes, Jesus has reversed the curse, but we only see just the, the, the smallest blossoms, the, the promise of the future fulfillment in our world today. But when Jesus comes back, it's going to be full tilt. And in that time, we're going to see the world as God originally designed it. And it's like, if this is a cursed world, what is that going to be like? Man, I can't wait. Listen to Isaiah 35, 6 and 7. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. Things like death, sorrow, and suffering, they will become distant memories. And guess what? Something else that's going to happen during that season. The Bible tells us in Zechariah chapter 14 that year by year, all the people will make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Interesting. Why would we do that? Why would we continue to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in this perfect paradise condition of earth? I'll tell you why. Because just as they celebrated Tabernacles back then, and even still to this day, to remember God's faithfulness and how he had led them for 40 years through their wilderness wanderings, how he had been true to his promises, how he brought them into the promised land, how he provided for them at every turn, was a defense to them, how their clothes didn't even wear out, the Bible says. Neither did their shoes for 40 years. Never had to go to Target for a backup pair. In the same way that they celebrated tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness during that season, in the millennium, we're going to celebrate tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness 
during this season. And let me just tell you that God has been faithful to you. He has been faithful at every turn. And his past faithfulness at every moment of your life ought to elicit your present trust. Even though this world is crazy, even though you don't know what tomorrow holds, even though as you look around, circumstances might be unraveling all around you, you can trust him with your future because he's been faithful in your past. Somebody say amen to that. But we're still not home. And so there's this story about an old missionary couple. And they spent a lifetime serving on the mission field in Africa. And they were returning home to just kind of spend a few of their twilight years at home with their kids and uh, before they went to be with the Lord. And this was a long time ago. And so they boarded a ship to cross the Atlantic to come back home. And as they were getting on the ship, they, they saw, you know, like there was a lot of commotion. And they talked to some people. And they found out that the president of the United States at the time, Teddy Roosevelt, was on the same ship heading home. And these missionaries had no fanfare upon their arrival to this ship. There was no one there to greet them or tell them thank you. They had no luggage. They had no possessions. And they're looking over at the presidential entourage. And as all these couriers are carrying his luggage and, and, and loading him on and giving him the greatest suite on the ship. And, and, and to be honest, the, the missionary, the husband, he was a little bit uh, sour about the whole experience. And he was wrestling with the Lord in his heart. And that was amplified as they pulled into New York Harbor. And there was a parade waiting there to welcome Teddy Roosevelt home, who had been in Africa on a safari, partaking in a hunt. And he's like, man, I mean, the mayor's here. And there's news articles and news reporters here to ask him about his hunt. Nobody's here to even greet us or thank us for, Lord, we've served you our whole lives. And and the missionary was just, he was getting a little salty. And he's wrestling it out with the Lord in his prayer time. And he says, what gives, Lord? I mean, here we are coming home, and there's no one there to greet us. And then he said he felt the Lord put his hand on his shoulder and whisper in his ear, you're not home yet. And let me just remind you, friend, you're not home yet. But we're heading home. And when you get there, Jesus is going to be there to greet you. And the Bible tells us that he's going to say with a big smile on his face, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that's been prepared for you by my Father and the angels in heaven. I'll close with this scripture, and then we'll pray. Let's read this together out loud. I love this. This is, we began with, let me set it up. We began with God's desire to dwell and tabernacle with his people. We saw that in Eden. We saw it illustrated in the most beautiful way through the tabernacle, which was a picture and a foreshadow of the ministry of Jesus, who now makes his home in our hearts. But there's still a yearning for a permanent dwelling. And that's what we read about in the second to last chapter of the Bible. Let's read it here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Oh, I draw your attention to that phrase. The tabernacle of God is with men. This is our glorious future, the tabernacle. Who knew that this simple little structure had so much to teach us about our past, about our present, and about our glorious future? Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for choosing to make your home in our hearts. I just want you to sit with that thought for a moment. The creator of everything that exists wants to make his home in your heart. I suppose maybe it shouldn't come as a surprise, seeing as how he chose to make his own entrance into this world in a stable, and he was placed not in a gilded crib, but rather in a crusty manger. And if you're willing to dwell in a manger, then perhaps I shouldn't be surprised that you're willing to dwell within my heart. And yet you don't force your way in. Jesus doesn't kick the door down, but he, like a gentleman, stands at the door and he knocks. The Bible says, Whoever opens the door, he comes in and he promises to make his home there and to fellowship with us. If you've never invited the Lord to become the ruler of the home of your heart, the king of the tabernacle of your life, why not do it right now? You say, how do I do it? You just invite him in. It's really that simple. There's nothing complicated or fancy about it. You just say, Jesus, I need you. I love you. I want you to be the king of my heart. And when you pray that, he comes in. He sits on the throne. He begins to change you from the inside out. He reorients your heart. He reprioritizes your heart. He reevaluates everything that's going on in your life. And you begin to look at the world through a new lens, no longer through the lens of how does this benefit me, but now you have a kingdom mindset and you're ruled by the king of heaven. You're governed by kingdom principles and kingdom values. They're all inverted when compared to the things this world values. And to an increasing degree and measure, you'll find within your soul a yearning and a hunger and a longing for something that nothing on this earth can satisfy. And it is a longing to be reunited with the one who loves you and has put the seed of his spirit in your heart until it reaches the fullness of its redemptive fruition when you see him face to face. You no longer have to walk by faith because seeing is believing. And on that day, you shall be like him 
for you shall see him as he is. And let me just tell you that everything he is is exactly what you want. You want Jesus. Whether or not you recognize it, whether or not you see it, whether or not you realize it, you want Jesus. He is beautiful beyond description. He is perfect in every way. And he's here right now. And he wants to do this life with you. You just invite him in and he'll come in. It's as simple as that. So Lord, I thank you for faith. I thank you that faith is rising in this room. Faith to believe. Faith to lay hold of your promises. Faith to live in the awareness of your thereness. Thank you, Lord, for your promise, for your presence, for your power. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.